Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for February 2019. My name is Mark Freeman and I'm one of the editors at Senses of Cinema. And with me today is my delightful co-host, Eloise Ross. Hi, Mark. She's a writer. She's an academic and a programmer. I am. All of those things. It's really exciting. That is very impressive. And in our rotating third chair this month, we welcome back my charming and my, am I overdoing it? My charming and intelligent (laughs) co-editor at Census, David Heslin. David, welcome back. Uh, Hello, please go on. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, no, that's it. That's all of the compliments you're getting. I'll take it. That's fine. (laughs) I don't deliver them very often. Enjoy them while they're here. On today's show is our annual deep dive into the Senses of Cinema World Poll. We published it in late January, and it's our journal's global survey of the state of cinema for the previous year. And we get contributions from right across the world from a vast array of cinephiles. And some of these people you know, work in the industry, and some are critics, and some are writers on film, and some are people that just really love movies, uh, as well as people like curators and festival goers. It's a really huge job, but one that we're really proud to put out at the beginning of each year. So today we're going to be talking through some of the key films that made an impact in the survey itself, and then we'll expose our own personal predilections and talk through the list that we submitted ourselves to the World Poll. And then each of us are going to cast a spotlight on one other list that particularly caught our eye and helped make this year's poll one of the most fascinating reads of 2019. It's an easy claim to make because we are only a couple of weeks into 2019, (laughs) but it's still really, really good. And for our bonus segment, for our fantastic patrons of Senses of Cinema, we're going to be giving some love to a film or a TV show that we felt was underrepresented or overlooked in this year's poll so we can get to give a bit of a shout out to something that we really felt needed to be um, more in the spotlight. But anyway, let's get it underway, Eloise and David. Let's dive into the Senses of Cinema World Poll for 2019. Great. Fantastic. So as we all know, or I trust we all know, the World Poll isn't really about finding a winning film. We don't do it to try and tabulate results and say, ta-da, here's the winningest film uh, of 2018. Um, the emphasis is really on our contributors and the, what people have to say about the films that they watched and what they engaged with, rather than telling up the best or the most popular film. But having said that, let's talk about the most popular film, shall we? Um, let's look at a bit of a rundown on some of the films that people clearly really responded to really consistently and really well. Um, we've just grabbed half a dozen of some of the, the titles that cropped up the most often. Uh, I figure because we all live busy lives. Uh, We don't all get to see everything. Uh, So how about we kick off one where I can say nothing. Let's start, Eloise. You've seen uh, Paul Schrader's First Reform. Tell us a little bit bit about that. I have seen it. And, you know, it didn't make my list this year, but it almost did. Um, I kind of had it down and was umming and ahhing about whether to include it. And then in the end, I think I saw it back in June um, or maybe early July when I was in the UK and really loved it. Then I saw it and was just like completely sucked in, moved by everything. It moves at a really slow pace um, and so it can really like absorb you as a as an audience member. Well, I found at least like it's very kind of slow moving and edited really um, in this really um, embracing kind of way. And Ethan Hawke, who is the main actor in it, is um, just incredible. He gives this beautiful performance. Um, there's almost no humour in it. And in a lot of his other roles, you know, he's kind of got a sense of humour and he makes jokes or he's a bit of a douchebag. Um, no offence, Ethan Hawke. Um, <laughs> he listens. <laughs> but he's, yeah, he's 
pretty much just fantastic in this. It has, I mean, you know, I feel like most people would know the narrative. It follows a, a um, not a preacher. What is it, David? What I, I guess a priest. Priest. Right? Except in an Anglican yeah. kind of, kind of Yeah, thing. and he lives in, you know, the ref, um, refectory next to this church and he lives alone and he has, you know, um, he has kind of a backstory that's, I guess, visited upon, but what is happening in this case is that a young woman comes to him um, for need, she needs support. She's pregnant and she, her husband is unwell and she kind of needs his support. And so it really explores how this person who is meant to help those around him can or cannot offer support to, to people. And it really explores, I guess, you know, that kind of problem. Um, and there's no solution in the end. So you kind of get really involved and then, and then in the end you just, Paul Schrader just says, I don't know what happens, <laughs> like in this very kind of bold way. I really love the ending. The ending, people have, I've read interviews where they've asked, people have asked Paul Schrader, like, tell us what it means. Um, and he just refuses to, which is a very smart thing to do. Yeah. You know, we all know what happened when um, Aronofsky Elizabeth. talked about mother. Yes. <laughs> um, Less words, Darren. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, whether or not he he has an actual opinion about what he thinks happened in his own script, Paul Schrader doesn't say, you know, one thing or the other which, and leaves it very open-ended, which I think is really fantastic. I mean, it's a very infuriating ending. Do you agree, David? Um. Yeah, I, I have to say I did find the ending a little bit of a cop-out. I, I feel like um, Schrader is trying to present us with this kind of um, this kind of almost like unacceptable possibility, which is that, you know, yeah. an act of terrorism, like, you know, suicide bombing could be like an ethical act. Mm -hmm. And he builds up to it and, you know, everybody gets to this stage where they're wondering, you know, is he, is he actually going to go through with it? And I, I felt a little bit like Schrader was like, well, look, I'm not, we're not going to go there. Okay. Let's just leave it at the fact that you were even considering it and go for something slightly more magic realist. Yeah. Um, I really, I really liked the final shot because it reminded me very, um, you know, qu quite clearly of that shot in the middle of Vertigo, which we all know Paul Schrader loves, um, where, well, I assume he loves it. I, anyway, why wouldn't you? <laughs> That's all I can say. Um, where the... They're kind of um, James Stewart and Kim Novak embrace and then they kiss and then the camera zooms around them. And then kind of from that moment, you don't know whether what happens later is a dream or whether, um, you know, James Stewart is stuck in the psychiatric ward and he's imagining all of this, whether he's stuck in his head or whether it's real. And I feel like it kind of pays homage to that shot and then sort of suggests the same, I guess, question about... Paul Schrader's own path, like after the movie, like what happens to Ethan Hawke after that. I found that the most engaging thing about that final shot. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I should um, appropriately enough confess something here. Um, I've never seen a Paul Schrader directed film before okay. um, this one and indeed have barely even seen anything he's scripted. Um, only I think The Last Temptation of Christ and Raging Bull when both of those years and years ago. Um, so I didn't have a great deal to compare to, but I, I did find it a really kind of strange and interesting film. Um, you know, it's kind of composition is just beautiful. Um, probably one of the best uses of Academy ratio I've seen in a long time. And we'll get to my dislike of Pavlikovsky later. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, um, I felt it was, it was also a very kind of claustrophobic film. Um, and yeah, it's, um, I, 
I, I guess I kind of I kind of went with it for most of the way. Yeah. Um, and by the end, I was kind of a bit puzzled. And, yeah. yeah. I feel like that, you know, that was the general feeling in my cinema when I saw it as well, that people were just so kind of befuddled by the ending. Um, yeah. But, I mean, there's certainly some really interesting themes there. I mean, you've got, you know, death and grace, um, you know, faith versus hopelessness. I guess there's a long tradition of that in, yeah. in cinema. And, um, yeah, Christianity being corrupted by big money. Like, this is... Yeah, you can see why it was one of the one of the most popular films in the world, Paul, this year. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So popular, I didn't get to it. <laughs> uh, so I will. Dave, you were you saw Burning? Yes, absolutely. And um, you know, Burning was a film um, that I was just hugely looking forward to. Um, you know, prior to the Melbourne International Film Festival, I've I've seen most of Lee Chang Dong's films, everything but his first one, Greenfish. Um, and I'd say he's like easily one of the best contemporary filmmakers. Um, his films are so complex and you know troubling. And yeah, I, I don't know they're just. Each one is an experience. Um, um, but I have to say that um, maybe because of those expectations, I was a little disappointed in Burning. I felt it was maybe one of one of his weaker works. Um, it, I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I, I, I think maybe my biggest problem, and maybe a lot of people would feel this way, um, is the fact that the film's sort of central mystery, um, so to speak, what, what happens to Hamey, um, is, um, you know, it's it's seems to be telegraphed in a very kind of heavy-handed fashion from a very early stage of the film. Um, and, of course, then there's a the question, like, you know, is this is this it? Or, you know, is Lee kind of messing with us, essentially? Yeah. And either of those possibilities seems a bit unsatisfying, to be honest. You're so um, right. It's a weird balance between, yeah, that really profound kind of problem that he's offering and then the more kind of teasing, you know, that, that weird kind of thing where you don't know whether the cat even exists at all, like that yeah. playful kind of treatment yeah. of, of what's going on. It's a strange balance. You're right. It kind of reminded me a little bit, I mean, that mystery element reminded me a bit of um, the original version of The Vanishing. Is it Sluza? Who I did haven't that? seen it. Which has that, that idea that, you know, the, the girl is gone, the boy is looking for the girl, and you know essentially what her fate was and ultimately you've got a pretty clear idea what his fate is going to be the further that he, he investigates this problem and it kind of reminded me of that like I kind of knew where it was going but I just I really just loved looking at it mm. I, had a, I had an experience with that film where the further I was away from it the more I liked it um, I remember sitting there watching it enjoying it thinking oh you know I'm, I'm really into it Love the love it visually. I'm really intrigued by it, and walked out and thought, "Hmm, okay. Well, I'm not. I felt it a little bit conflicted. The more time I spent away from it, the more I wanted to go back and see it again, which I have not done. Um, but you know, I, I ended up really, really appreciating, really loving that. that yeah, film a lot. And we've talked about this briefly, Mark. I think, but I had the opposite yes. um, response, where I kind of loved it and was very moved by it. And then, as I got further away, I think the fact that those two weird tonal kind of things don't quite mesh, and I thought, was it more of a failure than than a like a success as a film and as a mystery and as a portrait of these like characters who could potentially be very very rich in Korean society and yeah as I got further away from it I thought it's less impressive to me now. It's kind of interesting though I mean maybe one of the reasons why it features so strongly in the world poll is that it is at least a film that you don't 
walk away with going, huh, you know, it's not like a shrug your shoulders, leave the cinema, who cares? Like you're, you're walking away grappling with stuff and it almost doesn't matter which which side you fall on. Um, it's a film that absolutely provokes you into kind of engaging with it no matter what. Yeah. David, do you think it would be a film that you, given that you have maybe put it lowest on your list of Lee Chang Dong films that you would go and see again in order to properly make up your mind? I, I think in this case I'd say yes because, like, Burning does feel like a film where there's a lot going on, particularly in the early parts where you're still just kind of getting to know these characters and you're trying to suss out where the film's actually going because that takes quite a while to, you know, become clear. Um, and, you know, just, just these little little things that you remember, like, you know, the, the facts that supposedly they knew each other, you know, in high school, this too, this yeah. main, male and female character. And, you know, what, you know what, what's going on with this, this Ben character, you know, like, um, yeah. I, think, I think there's definitely a lot there to take in. Um, so yeah, I could, I could see myself revisiting it. Mm. Um, speaking of revisiting, Mm. I'm going to talk about Roma. (laughs) (laughs) Now we have talked about this on, on the podcast, so we perhaps won't belabor it too much. You know where I stand on it. Um, you know, obviously this has been a, a film that's become very, very popular. It's up for a whole stack of awards. And it's one of those films for me where I feel like, well, you're making the right choice with this one. Um, you know, I know that I said on, on the podcast in the past that there, that I, I took a, a while to sort of fall into it, that I was conscious of my watching, but not of my absolute engagement, that I was outside it, looking at it, beholding its beauty. And then before I'd realized that I was 100% invested in absolutely every single thing that was going on in that film. So that in the end, I found it incredibly moving and I was really you know, kind of swept up in that film. I totally forgot about the fact that I was outside it looking in as some attractive kind of artifact. Mm. And then I was actually immersed in it and I wasn't even aware that I was, that that shift had been made, which I mean, for me was such a pleasurable experience kind of having that, you know, that experience where you're outside of film thinking Mm. I should be liking this more. I should be more engaged with this. I should be totally immersed in this, but all I'm doing is looking at how pretty the framing is or, you know, I'm so dazzled by the way the camera's moving. I don't think I'm getting into what's going on. Um, and then at some point it happened and I was completely lost. I feel that, um, you know, while that may not be a unique thing in cinema, you, know, you could say that about a lot of films, yes. it's definitely always a wonderful thing when it yeah. happens. And I felt exactly the same. Um, I think... For me, what worked about Roma was it feels open-ended. It doesn't feel in any way kind of constrained by narrative beats or like, you know, structure. Um, And it really, I guess, to be honest, just kind of felt like life. And I think that's a real testament to um, Huron's like attention to detail, um, to just these, just these like everyday things happening in the background, you know. Um, And... Yeah, I thought the performances were amazing. I, I think don't listen to anyone who says that uh, Yelitsa Aparicio is, you know, not really acting or whatever. She gives a fantastic yeah. performance, um, a really understated She um, really does, yeah. And you're right. Like, it's mm. just, I mean, it, it does have some coherence, but it is just a series of vignettes, really, you know, following this family and this woman um, over a period of time, not constrained by any sort of, you know, kind of plot beats or, you know, any runtime. I mean, I'm sure that Quran had a runtime in mind, but you can see that it's not really, yeah, trying to, you know, stick to anything. Yeah. Um, I'm not a big fan of this film. Uh, I think that it, I don't, I don't see it as, it's hard to 
like separate my opinion from the film from my opinion of the hype around it, I suppose, because I just feel like it's maybe not quite significant enough an achievement in all of the things it's getting applauded for um, to warrant this kind of thing. It makes me feel bad for all of the other films that do do stuff really well that, you know, don't get recognised for those same sorts of, of things, I suppose. I mean, I'd, I'd rather Roma than, you know, some of the other films that have got a lot of attention where you're like, really? That's, that's true. <laughs> really? What do you, I, mean, I mean, do you have any theory as to why that film might have captured the zeitgeist right now? Or? Roma? Well, I think Quaron is, you know, very famous anyway. And so, you know, definitely he would be, he's more kind of ready to, to receive that sort of praise. Um, people know who he is. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's, that's a good, good reason as any to, to explain it. Um, he's but, also a, f- a filmmaker who's done a lot of really popular stuff. So mm. that there are people who are like, we've liked his other stuff that has been with, you know, George Clooney or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then, then you know, kind of, okay, well, now he's going to give us this other thing. Yeah. And, and so I'm more prepared to buy Roma having seen some of the more popular things that he's done in the centre of Hollywood. Yeah, totally. And it is, I mean, it's called Roma, like it's such a great title. Yeah. It's just like one word. It's very, you know, I don't want to say catchy. That's not what I mean, but it's like very mm. grandiose yeah. as mm. a product. And yeah. so I think, And you it's know, an ambitious film and it's not, yeah. I think, yeah. afraid of that. And, yeah, um, yeah. Do, um, do either of you have any thoughts on the whole sort of, you know, watching it at home on Netflix versus I haven't watched it at divide. home yet. Yeah. Um, I did see it in the cinema and I would hate for my only experience to be at home yeah, I feel just because the image is so extraordinary. Mm. That said, I've spoken to people who have only watched it at home and they've walked out and they've loved it. So, mm. you know. Yeah, there is this, I don't know, some people say if you watch it at home and you don't like it, then you should have watched it in a cinema. You watched it at home and that's why you didn't like it, you know. And I don't really buy into that or appreciate that kind of comment because it suggests that, you know, one person can maybe only understand why something might be good. The sound design, for instance, which is something that is being lauded. That's something that, you know, I feel like sound design is done so well in so many other films and... Um, that, that I don't think it really deserves the praise for, for that reason. Um, but you know, that you can only get the sound design if you're in a cinema is kind of not really a fair thing to say. Yeah. I was reading a really enormously depressing thing from, was it on the Hollywood Reporter or something? And it was one of those, you know, um, secret Oscar ballot discussions. And, you know, I was reading one of them and they basically said, so I watched Roma at home and like, it was so totally boring and nothing ever happened. And then we just, every time she walked in the street, we were hoping she was getting knocked over. <laughs> and then I just turned it off. That's why I'll be turning off the Oscars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that that sense of a film like Roma, you have to sit with. If you're not prepared to sit with it, you're not going to get anything out of it. And because it doesn't grab you at the start and say, here's this amazing thing, this compelling narrative you've got to hang on to. Well, just films in general you have to sit with. Like if you're only half paying attention to any film, then you're going to find it boring. Absolutely. Like this is just what I can tell from talking to people who spend movies on their phones and they think that the movie's boring. I'm like, well, the movie's not boring. You're just... You are. You're in a state of... (laughs) You're boring. Distraction. Distraction. Yeah. 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 All right, Eloise, tell us about Cold War. All right. Well, one of the things that I kind of missed about Roma is that the colour, like I really wanted to see Mexico colour, um, the colour of the city at this in this film. And I felt like the black and white was a little, like a little weak 
it was didn't have a lot of contrast i i found um but in something like cold war the black and white cinematography is incredible like the blacks are very black and the contrast is very extreme and really really engaging um and i think that cold war really deserves its black and white aesthetic um and i i just thought it was kind of incredible i'm really into i feel like a lot of these well, first reformed particularly and cold war are both films that are kind of told um as fragments just yep. fragments of someone's emotion or fragments of a conversation um fragments of a relationship where it's not like the the filmmaker needs to really explain everything that's happening but you can understand the emotion from what you're seeing these yep. kind of you know um just little snippets of of someone's life and that's what i really loved i felt that it carried these characters forward throughout 15 to 20 years in this very rich um kind of portraits that we didn't even really need to see everything that was happening to them yeah. that it, that it came through anyway in a few lines about the you know the social and political climate in Europe at the time a few references to the iron curtain and to the yugoslavian kind of um block and things like that and i just found that really really kind of incredible yeah i mean i i liked it very much but i wasn't blown away by it is it terrible to say the thing that i liked the most about it was that it was short <laughs> <laughs> like you know this is this is something that we don't experience anymore like oh let's have a three and a half hour film of somebody it's, walking through wheat oh very it's trendy now to talk about oh. how films are short which i i hate people performatively saying that short films are better although i do love the drake meme well, where he's like 89 minutes he's like 90 minutes and it's the yeah. like he's saying no to it 89 minutes and he's really happy like yeah. the drake with, with the flip side fine. just to defend myself here <laughs> the flip side is oh it's three and a half hours but I just really loved it and it was really great like ah you know like oh like yeah it's yeah. long but yeah it's yeah. long but yeah. oh you know blah yeah. um you know i say this as somebody who really loved roma which is long and doesn't really have any narrative but yeah. i mean the fact that i could enjoy that film and be out of there nice and fast like that i mean the reason that people are i guess are starting to say that is because films are bloating like crazy they're getting longer and longer and longer and longer and longer and you have to sit there forever and yeah even know. yeah yeah your pg action you know yeah, movies are all like three hours, hours long now. three hours long like enough already yeah i mean um, i wonder whether the fact that it was 89 minutes or 90 minutes is tied to your enjoyment of it given that you loved roma you know anyway even though it's two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I mean who's to say that you wouldn't have loved Cold War if it went for longer? But I mean it is short, but it covers so much and there's a you can tell that there's a real skill yeah. in that. See my my thing was that towards the end that fragmentary nature of that film I liked, but in that last 15 20 minutes I was kind of over it. And if that had gone on longer than that I would have been done. I think I mean I I have to say I really wasn't that crazy about Cold War and But interestingly, I don't think it was about the running time. I, I feel like, yeah, if that film were twice as long or whatever, I don't necessarily know if I would have liked it more. So for me, it wasn't that the film was too brief in terms of running time, um, but I felt that what it chose to focus on was often misjudged. And I feel that that was um, there was there was too much exposition. I think too too much, um, you know, kind of focus on the allegory. of you know of their situation what this represents about Europe at the time um 
and really not enough in terms of their characters. And I, I just wished, I was thinking afterwards, I just wished that we could have seen little vignettes um, yeah. of them together that maybe were less uh, bound up in kind of what's actually happening in the narrative. Yeah. So, yeah. It was a popular film. Um, tell us about The Shoplifters, Dave. I think you've seen that recently. Uh, yes, indeed I have. Um, uh, two nights ago, in fact. Okay. <laughs> yeah, at about two in the morning. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Perfect time. Yeah, indeed. Um, so, you know, the film won the Palme d'Or at last year's Cannes Film Festival, and it's really not hard to see why the jury went for it. It's, it's this kind of humanist drama about basically lost people finding one another. It's really carefully composed, really moving. Um, I have to admit that Corriere is not a director I've tended to seek out much in the past. I, I found um, the other two films of his I've seen a little bit messy and overly sentimental at times. Um, but um, he seems to have those tendencies mostly under control here, I think. Um, still did have a couple of reservations about this one, which I might get to in a moment. But what, what did you guys think? I love Shoplifters. I've talked yeah. about it quite a few times on this podcast already, so I didn't want to say too much more. But um, the performances are yeah. so incredible. I mean, when you've got a film that is, what, two and a half hours long, like the fact that we get so much from the performances to illustrate right. the characters is is really just so incredible. Yeah. And, and just, yeah, the, the, the construction of that family and the kind of movement of that family emotionally throughout that the trajectory of that film I think it's just beautiful I did see it on a plane um, <laughs> and which you know like I saw it on the tiniest like basically I was on a mobile phone when I watched it but it was one of those situations where I'm watching it on a plane and maybe it's the altitude um, but you, you know, cried a lot I, I didn't cry a lot Eloise <laughs> it's um, quite a few yeah I did I did get a little bit you know I think it was just the humidity in the plane <laughs> um, did it to me, but yeah. I was very moved by it. I think, yeah, I, maybe the one thing that was holding me back from fully embracing was, um, this is something I was touching on before with First Reformed, you know, um, there's this tradition of films that present us with this kind of central dichotomy, which is like an opposition of kind of mainstream society um, and and something unconventional or socially frowned upon yeah. that exists outside that um, and then using that to reflect upon the deficiencies of mainstream society. Um, I think that can be a very effective form of social critique um, and a very humanist kind of um, manoeuvre. Um, here I felt like maybe, you know, the fact that this kind of this impoverished, like, makeshift family is just presented as so unambiguously better than, you know, the, say, mm. the deadbeat mum and yeah, dad. Yeah, yeah. It just felt like his creator just exchanging one form of social judgment for another. Yeah. Um, and, you know, is he tipping the scales a bit by giving us such an idealised kind of family unit? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, he's very convincing in what he says, but maybe that's because he does go for those extremes. Yeah. Last one we want to quickly hit... Um, hit is Black Clansman, mm -hmm. um, which uh, you know, is a, a film that I found super interesting. It was one of my favorites of the year. Um, you know, I, I don't want to, again, we spent a whole podcast talking about it, so I don't want to really spend too much time um, picking over those bones, but uh, it was such a kind of visually exciting film. I just loved falling into the, the kind of the, the amazing aesthetic uh, that Lee goes for, uh, sets up such an interesting uh, kind of uh, trajectory for a narrative of having, you know, the the African-American guy um, teeing up a relationship with the Ku Klux Klan, sending, you know, the white colleague in to sort of infiltrate them. Um, there are sequences in there that I absolutely, completely loved. Um, probably the thing that I have taken away 
the most from Black Klansman is none of the central performances, which were terrific. No, no knocking of them. But I, I can't even remember the name of the actress's name. But it's the the woman towards the end who's the wife of one of the Klansmen, um, right? Yeah. Who who sets up a, a an event towards the end of the film, and there is something about the kind of you know. The, is it Hannah Arendt that does the banality of evil? Is that her? You know, this kind of very ordinary woman who you would meet in the street and would think of her as being perfectly lovely, and of course she's a monster. Mm. Um, and that's one of the kind of enduring images I've taken away from that film, that that memory of this woman who looks like the lady who would serve you lunch or you might see in a supermarket who would be super lovely and really friendly. And just wears then, a hood in her spare time. And then just wears <laughs> a hood, you know, on, on the weekends. <laughs> I um yeah I didn't love this movie you know through and through but I did enjoy certain parts of it it was great fun in a lot of ways and I think that that does a service to the social message that that Lee is trying to get across um but I also loved Harry Belafonte oh yeah um you know his sequence it was very it was very easy to see what was happening there um like it wasn't a subtle message at all yeah. but um yeah I did quite enjoy that bit and that the editing there where you see Harry Belafonte. I mean, it's um, Birth of a Nation, isn't it? Yeah, and then yeah. Birth of a Nation and, you know, what that tr- is trying to kind of, like, present to us um, was was f- quite powerful. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's yeah. wonderful. I have to admit I haven't seen this film, so mm-hmm. I don't have a lot to say about it, but I'm curious about something that's been raised in um, a lot of the reviews, usually positively, which is the final sequence of the film, um, mm-hmm. um, documentary footage, I yep. believe, of the Charlottesville yep. Yep. Uh, riots yeah. or whatever. Um, how did you feel that worked? Because when I read that, I thought, that sounds a bit opportunistic and heavy-handed, but I, I, I wonder how it plays. I mean, I, I would agree that it's heavy-handed, but I didn't mind. Hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, I think it's it it kind of like, see, it's today. Yeah. Um, like and some, people, spiked, some but... people are like, yes, that's very obvious, but look, I don't think everyone is, and I think some people might watch that and just still think it, it was, you know, in the past, which is what this footage is trying to suggest that it's not. Um, so I don't think it's unnecessary. Look, I was bawling when that footage yeah, came yeah, on. Yeah. I'll tell you that. But um, yeah. And you weren't in a plane. I was not in a plane. I was just <laughs> in a regular cinema. Um, yeah, but I... It's, it's very, it's a very interesting choice, but it does work because the beginning is kind of set up as though this is like a kind of a newsworthy event anyway as well. And so that, that kind of bookending of the film yeah. works. Fantastic. All right. Well, if you want to share with us your best films of the year out of those six that we've just talked about, head over to our Facebook page and leave a comment there for us. Hi, my name is Sean Bell from Civitavecchia in Italy. My favourite film for 2018, Andrew Haig's Lean on Pete. Lots of great films this year, Phantom Thread, Roma, have kind of been recognised elsewhere. A lot of people miss this one, but it really epitomises what Roger Ebert said about movies being an empathy machine. It's right up there with uh, Kelly Reichardt's Wendy and Lucy. Fantastic, humanistic piece of work. For our next segment, we're going to pick out our individual lists and just have a quick look through them and talk about some of the favourite things we've got, maybe, you know, why we why we structured it the way we did, because, you know, if you get into the World Poll, you can see that people put all sorts of things on and they categorise it in a number of different ways and that that's often what's really interesting about the World Poll is seeing what individual decisions people have made in making their lists. 
So, Mark, do you want to have a little chat about your own? I, I will. Um, some of the films we've already talked about, so we, we can overlook Roma, we can overlook Shoplifters, we can overlook Burning, we can overlook Black Klansman. Um, so basically, like we already talked about, some of the main films that I really, really loved. Um, a couple that I do want to talk about that, that weren't mentioned, um, Annihilation, which we did uh, here on the podcast um, quite a while ago. I really loved Annihilation a lot. Uh, I thought that was a super smart, really aesthetically exciting film that, that played around with some really interesting ideas. Um, super confidently directed Alex Garland, two for two for me. His previous film, Ex Machina, is another film that I really, really appreciate. And I, I really loved Annihilation. Got a little bit of love in the poll, but not as much as I thought that it would. Um, you Were Never Really Here, Lynn Ramsey's film, uh, which I really loved a lot as well. Again, I think that might have been one that we did on the podcast, didn't we? Um, that I think we did Can't at, remember, at one but, point, mm. or at least maybe I've already talked about it, a film that I, I really enjoyed. Um, I'm not a fan of Joaquin Phoenix. That was one time where I'm like, you're not annoying the crap out of me. I thought he was amazing uh, and a really, really tremendous film. Um, I will have to talk you know, embarrassingly about my intense love for Paddington 2. Um, and, you know, th there's a thing about Paddington 2 that... Um, I, I worry that people think, oh, that's kind of, you know, it's the kids' film, so therefore somehow it's not it's not on par with Burning, and it is. Um, you know, they're different films, but, you know, you can get the same amount of pleasure out of Burning that you can out of Paddington 2. Um, Paddington 2 is rich in film history. Um, it's in many ways quite a complex film, and in other ways it's a really, really simple film it does an amazing job of mixing live action and animation. Uh, there's a sequence where he goes into a pop-up book, which is one of my favourite scenes out of the entire of entirety of last year. That is, I, I will never forget that until my dying day, that point where he just scoots around in that animated pop-up book, which is just so beautiful. It is really funny. It's really sweet. I love Hugh Bonneville and um, Sally Hawkins, who are amazing. Ben Wishaw is the perfect voice. Was it my... Who did they have initially? They had... Was it Colin Firth, I think, was going to be Paddington's voice? Really? Yeah. And then he got the... <laughs> like, Colin Firth got sacked. Um, oh, or no decided, like, yeah, it's not quite for me. Mm. And they brought in Ben Wishaw. And he's amazing. Uh, I, it's a great voice. And, you yeah. know, I, this isn't, you know, Mark is a big sook. But I totally howled at Paddington. Like, really lost my shit. And I wasn't on a plane. I was in a cinema. And all of the kids are laughing at all the fun stuff. And all the adults are weeping. Um, <laughs> it was just incredible. Uh, so I really, really appreciate Paddington 2. If you have not seen it, do not be prejudiced against it. Because it played in a multiplex or, you know, isn't... Nine hours long about wheat fields. You know, it's about a bear and he does some cool stuff and it's he goes really, to prison. It's really, really, good fun. I know. I adore Paddington too. Well, well after that, uh, you know, that talk, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the father of a four-year-old, so unfortunately I have no excuse now. I, you I must, have no excuse. I must seek it out and yeah. hopefully he will enjoy it as much He's as he I will enjoy it. As, yeah. And just one other quick shout out that I wanted to give was to um, a sitcom, The Good Place, uh, which I absolutely adore that sitcom uh it's gone through three seasons so far 
they have very, very cleverly reset the the focus for the narrative each season. It's one of those sitcoms that is really appealing and really fun, and it is very funny, but it's also very complex and you know confronts all of these very, very um, thorny issues about ethics and philosophy, which I really love. So love The Good Place. If you're into trolley problem memes. If you're into the trolley problem, you've come to the right sitcom. Um, And as just an aside for The Good Place, Darcy Carden, who plays Janet, incredible. All right. That's my list. I mean, I did have Roma at number one um, and, you know, Shoplifters was in there as well and Burning. um, But uh, that was my list for this year. Well, my list is uh, a list of 20 that I, and I've just kind of made it a mishmash of new releases that I saw and repertory film screenings that I went to. I think what I've done in the past is kind of had um, 10 of each or, you know, 14 of each, I think last year I might've had, but um, this year was just 20 and um, I think there might be 13 new releases and, you know, the rest are repertory or otherwise. Um, So uh, I just wrote it kind of in the order, you know, I didn't want to give any, you know, make a, I just really don't like lists. So I didn't want to, um, make it seem like I gave anything, uh, made one thing better than the other. Are you afraid really of offending just... the other films? Are you? This is a theme. <laughs> just I don't afraid want your feelings of to be hurt. Changing my mind the following week yeah. and then, you know, needing to, um, stick by it or whatever. So, I mean, one of the things that I put in there that I'm just going to shout out, um, is Soda Jerk's Terra Nullius which is a film slash exhibition piece. Um, You know, it's a 60-minute mashup, if you will, although I don't really like that term, mashup. It's more of a um, post-production movie type of thing um, of lots of clips of Australian films or films with Australian money um, to make this kind of new narrative, uh, political, anti-colonial kind of, a film narrative, um, repurposing a lot of old, old stuff. And I loved it. I mean, I've talked about it on here before I interviewed Soda Jerk, um, a couple of months ago for the podcast. So I don't think I need to talk through it anymore, but, um, really loved it and do think it was one of the highlights of last year. Um, I also have, um, included the experience of seeing, um, part of Agnes Varda's um, Liverpool Biennial exhibition um, on my list. So there was a number of pieces that she had at the Liverpool Biennial and one of them was um, her film Ulysses and it was playing in a gallery space next to the, the photo that she took 50 years ago or whatever um, of this kid Ulysses and a a goat skeleton I think and anyway then she goes back 30 years later and interviews the people in the photo and it's her film and so the film was playing kind of on a loop next to the 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 photo and that was really quite fascinating um to see them together and just the way that she'd put them up and kind of the funny experiences I had of people wandering in and out and you know that was really quite a memorable experience as well um something that was the most meaningful to me last year um, I also put a few things that I saw at Il Cinema Ritrovato, including this incredible film by Alfred Santel called That Brennan Girl from 1946, um, which was a, is about a, a single mother and it has a whole lot of really, really interesting um, kind of social and cultural commentaries and probes these questions and ideas about what's the role of women in society, um, doing all sorts of um, really quite quite progressive things, I think, for this time, like such an interesting film and I hope that more people will get a chance to see it 
now I, I think it might be on like the um, someone's restoration list. So hopefully it's going to get some kind of release or, or package somewhere. Um, and then, I mean, there are a couple of films that we've already talked about on this episode today. Um, but what I really like to do with my Whirlpool list, I suppose, is have that combo of new releases and then just individual experiences. Mm. You know, it's kind of my own diary in a way of, of my year. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, I had a nice time revisiting some of those memories for my list. Mm. David? Um, yeah, so I, um, I, again, you know, had a, had a couple of these on, on my list, but um, two I really want to focus on um, are both Australian. And this gives me a lot of joy because I honestly don't often seek out Australian cinema, certainly not as much as I should. Um, and I like it even less, you know, when I, when I do. So, you know, um, I was able to see two really wonderful, um, local films this year. Um, uh, one of them was, um, Grace Who Waits Alone, um, a very kind of low budget film. It's only really had, I think, one festival screening at Queensland Film Festival in 2017. Um, but it formed part of a package that, um, Bill Masoulis has been taking, taking around, um, to just like little cinemas or venues, um, with, uh, you know, about one of about five kind of low budget kind of underground films. And, uh, this was, um, this is directed by Georgia Temple, who's, um, I think in her early twenties from Brisbane. Um, and basically it's, it reminded me a lot of some of Chantal Ackerman's early work, mm. very minimalist, very kind of, um, as you might say, austere, but like just really beautiful in sort of what it kind of focuses on and like the space that it, it puts you in. Um, also boasts really just wonderful sound design. Great. Um, so it's a great title. Yeah, it's, it's magnificent. And I, I really hope that people will be able to see this because I know I would have never heard of it if it hadn't been for this little mm-hmm. screening up in a, the back of a bar in Fitzroy. So, um, so that was, that was great. And, um, another one that I really liked, which people will be a little bit more familiar with, um, is Strange Colours. Um, by um, Elena Lodkina, um, which, you know, I, I found just like a really sort of interesting examination of this kind of way out kind of rural Australia, a part of Australia that many of us, you know, in the cities maybe will never see um, or have never seen. And, um, you know, I, I found it interesting that both these filmmakers um, have actually written um, on, on the place that Ackerman has had in their development as filmmakers. Um, so, you know, if Australian cinema is moving in that direction, that would be a very, very pleasing trend. <laughs> yeah, that's it fascinating. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So there, that's a, a quick fly overview of, of what we thought were the, the best uh, out of our list. So if you want to tell us that we're wrong, um, which you might, um, but we hope you don't, uh, you can come to our Facebook page and leave a comment for us there. At Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe, highlighting films from the past and present to bring you exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition, so we have now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. If you subscribe at the higher level, you get all the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast, so you don't have to be interrupted by me every month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. It means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Senses, 
and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Senses of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout the film year. My name is Christopher Llewellyn Reed, and I live in Baltimore, Maryland. I am lead film critic at Hammer to Nail, film critic at Film Festival Today, part of the podcast The Fog of Truth and host of Real Talk with Christopher Llewellyn Reed, put out by Dragon Digital Television. So one of my favorite film experiences this year was watching Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse as I slowly realized that the filmmakers were taking an incredibly tired mythology and reinventing it in ways that I could not possibly have imagined going into it. Part of what makes the world poll work is the variety of ways that people approach the task. People have radically different film years and vastly different interests. So the way people think about and organise their best of lists is completely idiosyncratic. And that's, for my money, the absolute best thing about the world poll. It opens up this multiplicity of experiences that cinephiles have experienced around the world. So we wanted to just spend a segment... Um, giving a bit of a shout out to a couple of really key lists uh, that we've really found interesting and engaged with uh, and looking at how these specific writers and contributors have set up their own snapshot for their film year. So, Dave, who who did you target? Who have uh, you picked out? So um, I almost had to get to, I think, in fact, page seven of the seven pages before I well finally found my, found my choice. Um, this is um, Kai Van Zorlen, um, a Dutch critic who edits um, Frameland. Um he, um, he talks a little bit um, in his World Poll contribution about his discovery of Tamil cinema this year. And this is something that interests me very much because um, I've spent a lot of the last couple of years trying to expand my own boundaries beyond, you know, Europe, North America, yep. sort of you know, parts of Asia. Um, so um, he describes Tamil cinema as um, a, uni a unique style of cinema, um, blending socio-political engagement and critique with popular genres and commercial entertainment in a way I'm not seeing anywhere else in the world right now. Um, so he, um, he goes on to list um, a few new Tamil releases, um, such as the Mumbai set gangster film Kala um, and the kind of Romeo and Juliet style romance um, Pariyaram Perumal. Um, alongside the more familiar titles like You Were Never Really Here, Philip Guerrero's Lover for a Day, and uh, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. Wow. <laughs> um, Which so, apparently is not that bad, so I, I am prepared to give it a I, crack. Depending yeah. on who you talk to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I'm really interested in this, um, you know, the, this idea of like national cinemas or sub-national cinemas and how they, yeah. can be, they can serve as a conduit for cinematic exploration. Yeah. I, I think they can be problematic ideas in their own right, but when... Um, directors from these countries are so underrepresented. I think um, any any way we can get in there is, yeah. is good. So you know. it's, it's one of the great things about the poll that, that I get out of it, that when you read through some people's lists, like this one that, that features the, the emphasis on Tamil cinema, mm. you sort of come away and you think, how much Tamil cinema have I seen? Mm. I, I haven't seen any, or mm. I've only seen that one film and I should see some more. Mm. And it's kind of the impetus to say, well, I'm missing this whole section of my film knowledge and my film experience, and now I've got to dive in. Um, and that's one of the great advantages of, of getting a list like, like Kites, where you think, well, damn, if this is really something that's, that's working for this person, I've got to get on board with it too. Yeah, absolutely. Eloise, who did you... 
I um, have chosen to chat about the list by San Francisco cinephile Brian Dar, who's actually a guy that I follow on Twitter and I uh, think occasionally engage with. But um, it's nice to kind of be able to recognise these names of people who's maybe whose work you follow as researchers or who's kind of um, if they if they program cinemas, you know, you follow what they do there and then to kind of see what they've done with their year and how they've thought about their own, you know, favourite experiences of, of whatever year. Um, but I really liked Brian Dar's list because he has put in a lot of thought and there's a, a number of categories that are quite great. So he's done 10 films with US commercial releases, um, five USA undistributed features, 20 single channel film and video works of less than oh, feature wow. length, five installation works, five expanded cinema performances. Um, and so it's a really interesting thing because not only is he talking about cinema, but he, I guess, in the way that I kind of highlighted Soda Jerk and Agnes, the Agnes Varda thing that, you know, he considers installation works and um, other kind of screen engagements as being very essential to, you know, our, I guess, experiences as filmgoers. But one that kind of caught my eye, I mean, I was interested in this list anyway, and then in his expanded cinema performances list, he has included Lost Landscapes of San Francisco 13 by um, Rick Prelinger from 2018, a um, silent video with live filmmaker and audience narration which is something that I have wanted to see. So Rick Prelinger runs the Prelinger archives with his partner, Megan. Um, and I actually went, it sounds like when I went there, they, I'm not sure if they've moved, but it was basically just a small warehouse with lots and lots of, um, you know, paper books basically, or like old magazines. I went there when I was researching for my PhD in 2013 um, and met, both of them and they were lovely and, you know, the service that they provide in kind of archiving these these things that would other go, otherwise go missing is incredible. But I know that Rick Prelinger has talked about his, like, Lost Landscapes of San Francisco or his um, road movie kind of home movie films that he edits together because this idea of the, the home movie travelling on a road is, is kind of lost now because people don't record that kind of thing on on actual video cameras, they might just record tiny fragments on their phones and, and it's, they're not kind of stored in an archive in the same way. So, that, you know, that was really interesting to me that that was included on Brian's list. Um, and it's something that I definitely want to see and I don't think I'll be able to unless I go back to San Francisco again. Um, but there's like a lot of really interesting stuff there and it's just so nice to see that, you know, commercial cinema um, can exist on the same page as like experimental yeah. video installations and everything. Um, but yeah, you know, a lot, there's a lot that I want to see from that, that list that, um, you know, I haven't heard of or come across before. So Yeah, that's a really interesting organisation for, for how he's tackled it to try and yeah. segment things out like that. Just yep. it's, makes it a kind of really rich read. Um, the one I'm going to talk about is actually somebody that the three of us all know. Um, this is Adrian Danks, um, who uh, works with Eloise, in fact, um, at the Cinematheque, at the Melbourne Cinematheque, and is one of the co-curators or programmers. What do you officially call yourselves? Co-curators. Okay. Mm, but he was also a former editor at Sense of Cinema. He is also a mm. former editor at Sense of Cinema, absolutely. Um, he's got a, a, a quite extensive list, and I just want to pick out a couple of things that I really liked about his list. For starters, he mentions The Green Fog, which was a film that I really, really loved. 
Um, again, that's another one of those films that I think that I liked the more I was away from it than actually the period of time when I was watching it. I just, I ended up just really thinking about that film a whole lot. That's uh, Guy Madden's uh, film where he sort of reshapes vertigo from pieces of, of uh, other cinema. So I did, I really loved that. He also mentions The Eyes of Orson Welles, which I don't know whether any of you, have you guys seen no. Eyes of Orson Welles? No. Is that the documentary that's on Netflix also? No, no. no this is different. different. This is Mark Cousins. Yeah. Oh, right, um, right, right. I mean, Adrian clearly really responds well to it. I was kind of torn about it in terms of, was it kind of just rubbish <laughs> or was it amazing? Um, so it is structured like a letter to Orson Welles. Um, the great the great joy of it is listening to Mark Cousins' voice because um, he's got a really distinctive voice. Uh, and and I, I still haven't quite decided whether I was 100% on board, but I'm glad that it's in there because I think it's a really interesting... Um, and provocative title um, to, to have in there as one of your, your favourites. Um, but the thing that I really liked about Adrian's list was the fact that he spent a fair bit of time playing around with different exhibition spaces that he entered into. Um, you know, he discovered Netflix. Uh, so he's, he's finally got Netflix and he's like, oh my God, the Battle of uh, uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, mm. a film I, again, was one of my um, favourite films of the year. Um, and his un, sort of appreciation of what opening up that streaming service does, um, you know, we all agree, better to see things in a cinema than on home, you know, on your TV. But when you're getting access to a lot of stuff that's really quite amazing, you know, something like Netflix can be, like Netflix is both the devil and the saviour. Uh, and, you know, he writes really, really well about how he's sort of engaged with that. Also talks, clearly he had a bit of an Orson Welles year. Um, talks about The Other Side of the Wind. Have you guys watched that? Yes. No. Loved it. I think hated maybe. Hated it. You hated it. Hated I was it. so into it. I was so not into it. I just was like, I think I had gone to it and I was like, oh yeah, Orson Welles. And then it was the 1970s as well. And I was like, holy shit, this is more 1970s than Orson Welles. But I mean, yeah. of course that there is... There's a lot there and you can see where it comes from in terms of like his mind and his intentions. Yeah. But yeah, is, I really... Is it terrible that the stuff that I really liked was the stuff that seemed to be framed as the joke? Um, and that's something that Adrian talks about that, you know, that there's a kind of film within the film. I loved his kind of wanky Fellini art film. That stuff was amazing. <laughs> and I... I can't believe that I didn't like the stuff with John Huston and Mercedes McCambridge. Like, how is that even humanly possible? Would it, would it be fair to guess that, you know, if you've responded well to, say, F for fake, um, then this yeah. would be on your wavelength? Because I wasn't yeah. crazy about that film. Yeah, like, I mean, look, I, you yeah. might not enjoy enjoy it then. It's very strange. Um, I mean, it, it. I think it pushes the audience away rather than invites the audience yeah. to have a good time. Yeah. Um, and so if you... Yeah, if you, I, I really love F for Fake. Um, and yeah, Adrian, like in fact, too. says yeah. that, that he doesn't think the other side of the wind works as well as F for Fake. Yeah. Right? And so, yeah, maybe, I mean, give it a go. But it is, you know, it's just over two hours long. So, um, and it doesn't really change. You know, sometimes you can watch something and think, oh, is it going to get better? Um, maybe and, in this case, it's just yeah. the same the whole way through kind yeah. of thing. Which is not to say that there aren't parts of it that I really mm. loved. Um, but, yeah, I, I just, nope. Yeah, maybe give it half an hour, David, and see see what you reckon. 
Um, the other thing that Adrian talks about that I was really happy that he mentioned was the Edith Head exhibition, uh, which is in a, a regional town in Victoria, Australia, uh, in Bendigo. Uh, and he talks, you know, really clearly about what that experience is like to go to that Edith Head thing. Did you go, Eloise? I, I did go. Not. I went in December of 2017, so it would... I, but I didn't put it on my 2017 world poll. But I did go and I um, talked about it on my other podcast, Cultural Capital. We went and reviewed it as a as a gang. Um, but I cried the second I moved in because the first thing you see is Barbara Stanwyck's Lady Eve costume and I just, like, burst into tears um, and was all uphill from there. <laughs> I mean, there was lots more crying. But, yeah, it was an incredible thing to kind of have this um, – almost physical experience with this film history that we've only seen on the screen. Yeah. Yeah. And and that, um, what's the exhibition space it's at? Do you remember what it's called? It's Bendigo the Bendigo Art, Art Gallery, Gallery, I think, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, like and there's a number they of do, exhibitions. They do amazing work up there. Yeah, they've just had a Frida Kahlo exhibition, yeah. um, some of her stuff. But yeah, they obviously have some arrangement with Tourism Victoria yeah. or even Australia because, you know, they get things that don't come to Melbourne. So you have to go out there, but it's a, it's a beautiful journey up there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other thing just, just around that Adrian's list is, you know, he does spend a bit of time talking about going to Ritrovado, where I assume you two had a beer. Did you? <laughs> we did. We even had some pasta oh. and gelati, well, all of the things. <laughs> all, all of the Italian things. Yes. <laughs> um, and he writes really evocatively about what it's like to sort of be in that particular exhibition space, to be at that festival and some of the films that he engaged with there. And it's really beautifully written. And I just really love the the contributions that say, like, yeah, the film was great, but I saw it at this place mm. at this time in this setting. There's another one, um, I think it's Jason, Jason Viersba, uh, who talks about a screening that he went to that was like the back of a shop with four people, you know, and seeing this film together. Um, and that that was one of the the big experiences of his film year. And yeah. I love that sense of... I love that as it well. It doesn't have to be the big multiplex or the Clever Pants, you know, film festival. It can be some random thing that you see with three others. In fact, I think last year on my list and something that I chose to talk about on the podcast was seeing King Kong, a film that I've seen so many times, but I saw it in um, Manhattan. Yeah. And so, you know, the act of seeing it there and then going outside and like being like, oh, there's the Empire State Building right there <laughs> was so incredible. So, yeah. I mean, you know, it's absolutely true that often it's the circumstances that are more memorable yeah. than the film. Yeah. So if, you know, listeners have a particular list that they want to um, to champion, then by all means just head over to our Facebook page and uh, leave us a message there. I would have to say the peak cinematic theatrical experience of the year for me was seeing The Other Side of the Wind at the New York Film Festival. I've been waiting for this film for 29 years since I was 13 years old. I never thought it would happen. I dreamed it would happen. Uh, And I really just thought it was just going to be a dream. And to see it in the way it was presented was truly magical. To see a new Wells film in this way was absolutely remarkable and I'll never forget it. Each month, Mark and I and our third chair will recommend something to you that's lit up our screen worlds this month, be it a film or something else film or screen related that we've really loved. Mark, do you want to recommend something from uh, February 2019? Yeah, 
And I want to recommend Russian Doll. Um, have you guys seen Russian yes, Doll? Yes, I watched it twice. Yeah, and I need to watch it the <laughs> second time as well. Um, so Natasha Leone, who is like, she's the writer, producer, showrunner, actor. She directed the final she directed episode as well, it, I think. And mm. she's amazing. Um, it is a, a show that is split between, I think the, the producers are her, um, Leslie Headland and Amy Poehler. Um, it is, has just released on Netflix. And I, I don't know, Eloise, if you're a, as big a fan of this show. Have you seen it, David? No? Oh. Um, that if you're clearly a big fan of it in the way that I am, I don't know whether your experience was like this, but the first two episodes, I'm like, people keep saying this is amazing and I mm. kind of think it's okay. And then I watched episode three and then just barreled and could not stop. Um, it is the premise being the Natasha Leone character. She plays um, uh, a woman called Nadia Volkov uh, and she is at her 36th birthday party and she dies and then comes to and she's back at her her 36th birthday party. Yes, it's obviously got a Groundhog Day sort of uh, premise, but I think it completely starts to move away from what that Groundhog Day um, concern was and starts working through some really, really interesting ideas. It is super funny, but you know, it, it is also a film that is incredibly moving and completely compulsive. She's amazing. She's so good. And, you know, hearing that you've gone back and watched it twice, that's precisely the thing. I, I would say, I think that final scene, to give nothing away, but the final scene of that season is one of my favourite things that I've <laughs> seen um, on Netflix, on TV this year. Yeah, okay, so it's only, you know, a month and a bit long, but... I absolutely love that final scene and it's worth mm. and 30 minute episodes there's only eight of them you can knock it over super fast it's incredible she's amazing yeah it's a film that sets up uh, like a sci-fi kind of um problem I guess yeah. and doesn't shy away from it like there are other I mean I'm just gonna say I've never seen Groundhog Day I think I've seen the first half of it about eight times yeah. like very you know, fitting yeah very <laughs> fitting isn't it but like whether Groundhog Day doesn't actually deal with the fact that he's repeating himself like yeah. in that kind of sci-fi way I'm not sure he but doesn't it, always die either right. sometimes he just goes to sleep and then he wakes up and and, wakes up and he has a song that that kicks him off which is shares I got you babe. Yeah. Um, but this, but this show really actually kind of gives, explores that platform, um, yeah. and so it's not just a comedy, and it's not just you know an existential drama, but there's really interesting things going on. And also develops this fantastic level of dread. Like it is a kind of funny, amusing premise. There's a whole montage where she cannot get down the stairs mm. of this apartment block without dying. She falls, she gets pushed, she keeps breaking her neck. It is hilarious and dark. But I found that as the episodes went on, it actually becomes almost like a horror movie. It mm. starts to become increasingly scary, increasingly oppressive. I was really impressed with how it played with those those tonal shifts. Yeah. Loved it's, it. It's so great. Yeah. Um, absolutely have to say it. I might go next just okay. because my recommendation kind of fits in with Mark's. Great. So I... Recommend Russian Doll? Recommend Russian Doll also. <laughs> but I wanted to go from that and recommend this show that I was absolutely obsessed with about 14 years ago called Dead Like Me, which you have seen it, Mark? I've seen bits of it, yeah. Yeah, so it's only at two seasons long, but I was so into this show and I had the DVDs back then and my housemate and I watched it like quite a few times. 
Um, so basically it follows this young girl who's maybe 19 or 20, um, played by Ellen Muth, who's this actor with this fascinating face, like her expressions are, are quite engaging and she has this boring temp job and she dies. What happens? Like a toilet falls on her head or something. Um, I hate it when that happens. <laughs> yeah. And so she dies in this really strange way and then all of a sudden she's not dead and she's like, what's happening? And she has, I don't know exactly what's ha- what happened, but she has become, she's joined the, the um, ranks of Grim Reapers. So she becomes a Grim Reaper. So she's dead, but she's still on earth and she can like talk and interfere and like kind of engage with people. And her, her job is to um, take people's souls from their bodies just before they die so they have a peaceful death. Um, but it's a really funny and it, I mean, it's not the same as Russian Doll and it has been some time since I've seen it, but I feel like in kind of exploring those ideas of death and um, responsibility, um, that it's doing some of the same things. And also, I mean, you have to mention that Mandy Patinkin is one of the leads as well. Um, and that it's really interesting in what it does with like American iconography because the main place where they meet is a diner where they all have maple syrup for breakfast. Um, and there's a number of other people as well. Um, it's just very, very funny and was so great when I was really into it. And Russian Doll has kind of brought it back into my, my mind as something worthwhile. So I think I might have to dig my DVDs out and give it another watch. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> For sure. David? Um, I, I think last time I was on, um, on the show, I was asked for a recommendation and I, um, I mentioned a, a DVD that was coming out from the French label Revoir. Now, I, um, I hope people won't start to think I'm working for them because <laughs> <laughs> maybe they can pay me, please. Yeah. You know, could always do with some more money. Um, they can become a patron of senses. Yeah, that's different. right. That's right. Yeah. It's all going to come to us eventually, maybe. Um, but yeah, um, so they've got a couple of DVDs. I think one that's just come out a couple of months ago and one that's mere days away from being released and both just um, you know look fantastic. Um, one is uh, Philip Grell's uh, L'Enfant Secret. Um, which is just such a beautiful film. Um, and, you know, this is the first time it's been on DVD, so that that's amazing. And the one that's coming up, which I only just saw uh, a thing about, um, is Marcel Hanoun's um, Un Simple Histoire. Um, he's like, you know, really groundbreaking kind of 1959 film. Um, and again, the only way I think that most people have seen that, unless they did catch it at a retrospective screening, um, would have been, um, you know, this really crappy kind of version on YouTube and floating mm-hmm. around the web, which is barely watchable. So, you know, hats off to any distribution label that's just bringing stuff out that you can't yeah. see. Yeah, yeah um, totally. You know. I mean, they're so good and maybe we should, I feel like we'll all feel like this deserves a recommendation. They're um, Jonas Mika's box set. Yeah. Right, especially yeah. since he passed away quite recently. Mm. Um, but you know, they have a fantastic box set with um, you know a lot of his films. That really putting them all in that one place on such a nice kind of disc release is yeah. is really worthwhile work. Mm. Absolutely. And every time you know, I, I sort of you know always check like the Criterion Forum or whatever for their yes. new releases, and you know, like all power to them. I love Criterion, but like you know, do we really need a a new version of, you know, like uh, All That Heaven Allows or, you yeah, know, yeah. the latest Ozu film. Yeah, they're yeah. not it's, often you know. releasing the rare stuff, are they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. and that's that's yeah. that's where it's at, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, 
That's it for this month. Thank you all for joining us on the Senses of Cinema podcast. Thank you to David Heslin, our, our wonderful third chair this month. We have a bit of an announcement about Eloise Ross. No. Um, well, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, this is my last my last episode. I've decided to step down as co-host of the Senses of Cinema podcast. Um, I've had a really great time. It's been 16 months or something. Yes. Um, and it has been a lot of fun coming out here and recording these episodes. Episodes. Um, and yeah, I've really enjoyed it, but just decided that it's time to move on and someone else is going to come in next month. Someone is coming in next month. With Mark to with be me. the new co-host. But That's I exactly. will, you know, I might pop back if they'll have me. Well, a, I don't know. A... <laughs> I mean, if you, if you buy me alcohol, um, <laughs> oh, I can be plied. Hmm. We yes. will have a, a difficult semester, so I'm sure there'll be plenty of going to the pubs on Friday There will be plenty of the pubs and I will... Get her back. Um, but I'll continue to write. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, yeah, I'm not really going anywhere. I'm just leaving the chair. Absolutely. And, and from my perspective, thank you so much for, for the past, is it 16 months? I think 16 or 18, yeah. yeah. October of last year We should do things like anniversaries, but <laughs> we forget. Yeah. Um, because Too much else stupid. going on. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much for being the co-host for, for all of this time. You have been wonderful. Thanks, We Mike. will, of course, continue to work in other ways together. And I will indeed be dragging you um, <laughs> back into the studio um, as a third chair. I look forward to it. Fantastic. And of course, farewell to David, farewell to Eloise. Um, as Eloise has said, next week, uh, next month, we're going to have uh, a new co-host who's coming in and she's amazing. Uh, so look forward to that. Um, thanks to the wonderful Troy Mori, who's our incredible um, sound producer. Um, he sits at the top of all of our lists. He even does better than Roma. Um, in the so World Poll, his it, font is the biggest. It, it, he, his font is the biggest um, in terms of his kind of incredible contribution to what we're doing. So thanks, Troy. Thanks also, of course, to Swinburne University for the use of their uh, recording studio here in beautiful Hawthorne, Melbourne. Um, I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks again for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast, and we will catch you again with a brand new co-host next month. <laughs>